I was thinking how much I could use that song on loop Monday morning on the way to whatever the week holds. So encouraging that God, who is greater than anything that we can face, and to be reconciled to that God and to know that God is the greatest privilege that a human being could possibly have. Well, the, even though it's cold today, we know that it's uh, getting close to springtime, and with spring comes wedding season, and we actually have several coming up here at Hampton Park, and one of the best ways that you can show love to a brother or sister in Christ is to rejoice with them and their family uh, at their marriage. I should say that one of the other great ways to show your love for a brother or sister is to grieve with them. Uh, when they have a loved one that's passed. And so often you see a lot of young friends coming to the wedding and a lot of old friends coming to the funerals. And I think the more we can mix that, where we have old friends at the weddings as well as young friends at the funerals, the more we express care for people uh, at the really significant experiences of our life. Well, in the first century... A Jewish wedding uh, could be a week-long celebration or even more. Um, so we don't do it the Jewish way here. Um, it would mean more than spending a couple hours on your weekend to be there. And I know some of you, Saturdays are precious, and so to spend a couple hours at a wedding doesn't seem like a good use of time. Imagine if we were into the Jewish system of a week-long or more. Well, Jesus and His disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus showed up along with His disciples. And as we shall find out today, it's a good thing that He did. Follow with me as I read in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as we see glory shining clear in the life of Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purifications, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Four areas we want to look at in this event in Jesus' life. First, in verses 1 through 2, we see well, we see Jesus' glory shining through. I want to talk about why I called it that. The manifest, His glory, is to have something shine clear. 
So glory shining clear. That's where the title comes from. In verses 1 through 2, first you see his participation in joy. His participation in joy. And then verses 3 through 5, the opportunity of crisis. Verses 6 through 10, the power of God. And finally, verse 11, reason for reliance. I trust God will use this passage to instruct us not only who Jesus is, but how we follow him well in our world. So first consider with me Jesus' participation in joy, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The third day would be after his encounter, three days after his encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. Now they're heading to the wedding. The wedding, a wedding takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And God brought the first man and first woman together to form the first home. It was part of a very good creation, unspoiled by sin and its curse. God's design for human marriage, male and female, made in His image, came with His blessing to fulfill, to subdue, and to exercise dominion over the earth. So marriage is His gift of joy to the human race. And our disdain or distortions of it set us at odds with the intrinsic bedrock laws of the universe God has put in place for our good. So there's a lot of disappointment about marriages or marriages that don't go well. There are struggles within marriage, but let's remember that marriage is a good gift from God. And as we follow His design the closer we adhere to that, the more joy that we find. It's fitting that Jesus, the creator and the sustainer, came to be part of this wedding celebration and, and that it is here that he would perform his first miracle. In the Jewish culture, a wedding feast could last a week or more. There was feasting and family and friends and joy and gratitude for God's good gifts and God's steadfast love for us, the very pattern of that steadfast love we want to find between a husband and wife. You might think that such a brief window of time to fulfill His earthly ministry that, that Jesus would have had no time for such social events. You might think that with the looming shadow of the cross, He would view joyous feasting with friends to be a frivolous waste of time. But to think so is to misunderstand who He is. It is to misunderstand who God is. In Psalm 104, the psalmist praises God for His provision for the earth. This is the God that we serve. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God delights in His creation, and God delights in us. 
It is God who has given us good things to eat and drink. God created marriage and family and music and community. And when God took on human flesh, He gladly participated on this joyful occasion. He was invited to participate because the family of this couple knew He would want to be there. We learn from John 21 that Nathanael was from Cana, the Galilee, so it's possible that he knew the couple. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also there, so the family of Jesus evidently had some kind of connection with these friends as well. But observe, I want us just to observe that the whole context of this miracle is found in Jesus' participation in this joyful occasion. He's there. He shows up. Jesus did not stand aloof from people in their feasting and joy. He would eat with tax collectors and sinners. His holiness didn't come from pulling away from people. It came from who He is and spending time with people, especially those bound in sin, was part of His mission and displayed His loving character as God. In fact, this is one of the issues that his critics found fault with him about. In Luke 5, we read, Levi, that was Matthew, made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now, we don't like paying taxes. We're getting close to tax season as well, okay? But, but our, our view of IRS agents pales compared to their view of tax collectors in the first century because they were collecting taxes for Rome, and Rome would often employ those who were, they were part of the nation that they had conquered to do that. And so if you were a tax collector, you were a traitor to your nation, and, and also tax collectors were known for being crooked in their business. They would often skim off more than, um, than was really appropriate in order to become rich on the taxes of others. So they, they were hated. And there were others that were there as well. And the Pharisees, remember Pharisees as separatists, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The religious enemies of Jesus found the associations in which Jesus engaged cause for criticizing and rejecting Him. Theirs was a hollow holiness that believed increasing one's own stature with God came from avoiding contact with sinners. Of course, they overlooked the major problem, and that is the sinful state of their own hearts. Luke seven thirty three to 35, we read John the Baptist. Jesus is talking, has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You remember he was out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, true wisdom from above, skillful living according to the will of God and character of God, gives birth to love toward others and works that benefit them. 
In other words, the way Jesus lived and his association with people was, was justified by the results of that kind of interaction. You know, some years ago, um, we went to eat at a nearby restaurant after Sunday morning worship. And on this particular Sunday, um, there were two distinct groups eating lunch. One group was dressed up and had clearly just come from church services. And the other group was relaxed, obviously enjoying a day off. What was so arresting on this particular day was that the group that had just come from church that day, I don't know which church they went to, seemed unhappy and grumpy and on edge. And, and the people that were laid back were, were cheerful and, and engaging one another. The visual contrast was sobering and sad, and I've never, I've never forgotten it. It's still in my mind. If worshiping God takes away your joy and your ability to enjoy the company of others, there's something terribly wrong because God's not that way. Now, thankfully, that experience was unusual. That's why I remember it. Most of the time I see Christians eating and fellowshipping in town, they seem joyful. And, of course, you know, there are times and seasons of grief and deep concern. We weep with those who weep and Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But if our demeanor in the community is usually grim and aloof and joyless, we grossly misrepresent what God is like. The gospel, by definition, is news that brings joy. And that joy should show up in the way that we interact with other people. And so the first thing that we notice with this miracle and what sets it up is that Jesus participated in the joy of this wedding feast. So let me ask you this morning, in what, in what ways do you display joyful gratitude over God's provision for you? I'm not denying that there are problems, okay? So we're, we're not going to pretend like there are no problems, but let's not pretend like there are no blessings, we want to display joyful gratitude to God. And in what ways do you make it a point to spend time with people in their joys and in their sorrows? Their, the, the connection with other people is important to you, created in God's image, and it's important to them because they need you in their lives and you need them. And then I want to ask further because of the pattern we see with Jesus when do you spend social time with those who don't know Jesus yet? And if you don't do so, how do you expect to display and share the gospel with them? Now, I get it. It's natural for us, and we should. You know, we have our life groups, and we get together for coffee and for lunch, and, and often that's going to be with other believers. But but if we're looking at the example that Christ has set up, not, not all of our social engagement should be just with believers. There, there ought to be time that we are making friends of those in the community and we're spending time with them. Are you known for contributing to the joy of community events or for putting a damper on them? And I, I just want to challenge you on this a little bit because... God in his providence has blessed us, putting us, you know, I just saw in a list, somebody uh, sent it in a text um, 
that Greenville's like number three, I forget what magazine it was in, number three destination for spring break. Not because of the wild parties, but in order to get away from the wild parties and actually enjoy a community that has all kinds of amenities. Now, here's the point I'm making. You and I need to interact with our community. You and I need to be at joyful events. You need to find your niche, people that you can connect with. It might be the running club. It might be the disc golf people. It might, it might be artists. It might be musicians. It, it might be just spending time downtown at Falls Park. But, but we've, we've got to engage people as those that recognize that God is the giver of these good things. And, and we need to shine out to them what it's like to live a life enjoying his good gifts and, and yet pointing them toward the, the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. And if we never spend time with people that don't know Jesus yet, how do we, what are we going to lob tracks over the wall? I mean, you can't do, you've, you've got to connect with people. That, that's the way relationships always work. So I just want to encourage you, find a way. Find a way to meet people. Find a, find a way to spend time with them. Find a way to spend time with them in a way where they can observe you participating in what's legit and in, in what is consistent with the character of God. Jesus participated in the joy. And then there's this crisis that arises, and it creates opportunity. In verses 3 through 5, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he asks you, whatever he tells you. Now, to be honest, this brief interchange puzzles us. In our English translation, Jesus just seems flat rude. His mother's mentioning there's no wine appears to be asking him to do something about it. And his response sounds like he's not willing to do anything about it. But then he goes ahead and he turns the water to wine. So what's going on? Well, first, Mary does not want Jesus to do something, does want Jesus to do something about the wine problem. But, but evidently in the tone of her words and the way she was communicating to him behind her words was evidently some kind of expectation or desire that since Jesus has now started his public ministry, that, that he might respond to this crisis in a way that would reveal to the entire wedding party that he is the long-promised Messiah. That seems to be what's going on between the lines. And, and we, we would think that from his response. Second, when Jesus calls his mother woman, he, he is not disrespecting her. He uses the same form of address when he tenderly speaks from the cross and assigns John to care for his mother. In John 19, when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, that is John, took her to his own home. So what does this have to do with me? He literally reads, what to me and to you? And he goes on, my hour is not yet come. In other words, he's communicating it's not the right time to make his identity known and his mission known in a fully public way. When that moment comes, it will actually be connected to his death on the cross. 
His mission is to save the lost, and that will require the sacrifice of himself. He may also be calming any impatience she may have with the timing and the way that he's going to resolve this wine shortage. John uses this statement about time throughout his gospel. In John 7, 2 to 10, his, his brothers seem to have a similar idea that his mom is at least intimating here. Now, the Jew, Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. At least not yet. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So it wasn't so much going to the feast or not going to the feast. It was the way he would go to the feast where he's not precipitating a lot of fanfare and a lot of premature uh, opposition. Seemingly same kind of thing going on with this water to wine miracle. In John 7, 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In John 13, 1, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And then as he prays, we get more insight in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is in the upper room, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the full display of his glory was going to be connected to the cross and to the resurrection, to his reigning, the right hand of God interceding for us. And, and Jesus is, in each of these events, he's conscious of when's the right time and when it's not. Well, as we read the account in John 2, it's clear that, that Jesus was not refusing to fix the wine problem at all. He will do so. But he's going to do it in a way that manifests his divine glory to a select few who know what happened behind the scenes. And I want us to think about that a little bit because everything Jesus said and did was in perfect alignment with God's timing and purpose. God's will involves not just what we do, but also when we do it and how we do it. Jesus was fully tuned in to his Father's will in every particular. He lived life that way and really set a pattern for us on how we 
are to live life. In John 5, he says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He had just done a healing on the Sabbath. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show you, so that you may marvel, so that you'll be astonished and amazed. So Mary's direction to his servants, to the servants, reveals her familiarity with the heart of Jesus, as well as her confidence in his ability and his authority. Do whatever he tells you. And you, and you do almost wonder whether Jesus gave her a little wink or whether she had kind of that, that, that smile, like maybe rolled her eyes like, oh, you know, she didn't want to be the prying mom, you know, but do whatever he tells you. He's going to do it anyway. I know him. Um, it, it almost feels that way. We don't know for sure. We weren't, we weren't there. There's a lot that's, you know, that's not recorded. Um, it, it would be lovely to see the videotape. But anyway. <laughs> but, but what we want to see here is that Mary doesn't dictate how Jesus must solve the problem. She has merely made the problem known, and she has confidence that he can do anything and, and that he will do everything that he considers best. We would all do well to give God that kind of latitude in our own lives, in our own faith in him. God often does not meet the obvious need in the manner or the timing that we want or that we imagine. But he has full power and authority to do whatever is best. It will be infinitely good, whatever he does. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to control anything. But we are well served to trust Jesus with everything. And you don't have to live life very long to have multiple occasions where God's not doing it the way you thought he should or that he would, and where you're really called upon to trust him for his power and his goodness, his authority. So this morning, what crises or problems are causing you to be impatient with God's timetable? be any number of things. It could be some illness. It could be desire to get married. It could be desire for children. It could be uh, even desire to see somebody come to Christ, and you've witnessed multiple times, and they haven't done so yet. And, and it's hard for you to keep trusting God. You've become impatient with Him. Well, in what ways can you submit to God's way and God's time just as Mary did when she said, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And, and what do you know for sure about the character and power of God that would lead you to full trust in him to do what's best when it's best? You know, earlier the choir was singing about our God, he could do anything. And it was moving, and it was powerful. And yet I'm looking across the faces there, and I, I know 
most of these folk well enough to know, well, I know he's dealing with this issue. I know that she's having to deal with this problem. I know that, uh, you know, just multiple heavy, heavy difficulties that people face. And to keep hanging on to the God who is greater and who is loving and who is Savior and, and to leave it to him to do it his way. Opportunity of crisis is an opportunity for faith. And then we see the, the center point of this miracle. We see the power of God in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the water in the stone jars was for washing, not drinking, as part of Jewish purification rituals. I have to wonder what the servants are thinking when they're thinking about taking that water. I mean, you wouldn't even do that in a restaurant. You know, use the water that we use for mopping the floors uh, and put that in the drink. Okay? So there's some degree of faith here. Jesus, Jesus is going to turn the liquid into something far more valuable and joyful than rinsing off dirt. Think about it. They each have a purpose. Rinsing off dirt and wine for celebration. But there's a big difference between the two. A family would usually serve their best wine first, and later on, when people had already drunk plenty and their sense of taste was dulled, they could serve the less expensive wine. You can imagine how expensive a week-long feast could be, particularly if you had guests that showed up you didn't expect, and, and how embarrassing it would be to run out of provisions. It's possible that the family was comparatively poor and had cut the budget too close. It's significant that the very first sign Jesus performs displays his identity as the creator who spoke the universe into existence and set its natural processes into place in a matter of days. John has already told us in John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here at the wedding feast, Jesus did instantaneously what normally takes months and years. Water naturally turns to wine, but only through a grapevine. In the process of growing grapes and squeezing them and storing them and aging the juice, he did it with complete, unpretentious ease. No one but the servants and Mary and his disciples knew what he had done. Later, Jesus would perform a similar miracle, feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with only a boy's lunch. He cares about people and their physical needs and feeds them. And as creator, he feeds every human and animal on the planet. And he's not stingy in his provision. With the feeding of the 5,000 plus, 
there would be 12 basketfuls left over. And when this wedding celebration ended, there would have been plenty of wine left as a wedding gift to the happy couple. The six water pots hold 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus has the servants fill them to the brim. That means that he created 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine, more than enough for the wedding feast. It was a gift of lavish provision in keeping with the generosity of God himself. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 talks about it. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Or Isaiah 25, 6, looking forward to the consummation of the age when God sets all things right on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, the feast of well-aged wine, a rich food a full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. To indulge in God's good gifts in a way that harms others or crosses boundaries he has established is wrong. That's why drunkenness is sin. That's why hoarding is sin. That's why stealing is sin. We don't worship the gift. We worship the giver. But that said, to enjoy God's gifts with gratitude is right and good. It is as God intended. Jesus himself makes that clear with his first miracle. He is the creator and provider of every good and perfect gift. He is powerful, but rather than crushing us, he turns that power for our good. He's not just king of the universe. He's the Savior King. That's God. That's the way He is. So how often do you give God the Creator and Provider praise for all His good gifts to you? I mean, if if you struggle with being depressed, if you struggle with, you know, being down or cynical or whatever, just take some time to actually pay attention to all the good. I mean, of all people on the planet, people that live in our community and in in our country ought to be grateful on this score because we live so much better than so many others on the the planet. And and we can overindulge and we can become worshipers of things, but but it's also wrong to, to have no use for it and have... No praise for God's goodness to you. So you look at your closet. You look at your, when you eat lunch today, you look at the food you're going to get to eat. You you look at the comforts that you enjoy. Those came from God. And, And gratitude and joy in them is appropriate. And then beyond that, in what ways does your own hospitality and generosity reflect God's? You know, if God is this way, and you and I are followers of Jesus, and, and we belong to God, then, then the way we use our things, the way we use our stuff, ought to have the same kind of generous care for people that God has shown toward us. This is, this is how we show who God is to the world. 
And then let's get a little more specific. To whom can you bring relief or joy by giving good gifts? This is just be a this is a good good thing to be practicing all the time. But let's maybe on this Lord's Day, you can just think through the people that you know and the the needs you know about, and the people that maybe need encouragement, or the the people you can rejoice with, and and you can take some of what God has given you, and you can lavish that on them, and and show the character of God. In verse eleven, then. We see reason for reliance. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus shone out clearly his divine character and power. His disciples had already believed in him as the Messiah, the Son of God. We saw that earlier, but, but this is the first of many miracles that would confirm that their faith in him was justified. John 5, 36, Jesus actually argues on the basis of works like these, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So these healings and these provisions that were miraculous, Jesus is saying, God the Father is doing that through me. He's given me these works to do. They bear witness that I am God the Son because I'm like the Father. I am one with the Father. I do things that are in line with the Father's will and character. And so many of his miracles were about meeting human need or about participating in human joy. In John 15, 24 Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The way Jesus lived and the things he did were so stunning and so obviously divine that that to reject him was evil. It was a rejection of God himself. And, And... often the rejection was because they had a false notion of who God is and what he's actually like. And Jesus disrupted that kind of false God religion and and let them see clearly who God really is. Early on in John's gospel, he testified, John 1.14, the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Father, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory, the shining splendor of Jesus, the God-man, was manifest not, not just on the Mount of Transfiguration. John's statement is broader than that because he characterizes the glory of God the Son as being full of grace and truth. You you could hear the words of God and what he taught. You could see the, the character and the love of God with the way he gave. Grace is lavish, undeserved giving. And that's exactly what Jesus displayed at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. His very words, what is this to you and to me, reveal that his generous miracle was not from a sense of duty, 
but from love. And as such manifested the very heart of God toward those in need. Very much unlike the ritual rule-keeping of the Jewish religion at that time, those water jars for ritual cleansing were no match for the best wine providing fullness of joy at a wedding feast. So if those who knew Jesus best and watched him do marvelous miracles like this one put their full faith in him, what stands in the way of your trusting him fully too? I mean, can you really just throw out the eyewitness accounts? Can you really just say, I, you know, 2,000 years removed, I just don't believe it? That's not intellectual on that. That's not intellectually honest. Look at the primary documents and you see. And then what of the shining splendor of Jesus? Glory full of grace and truth have you experienced firsthand. You know, that's what gives rise to the kind of songs that the choir sang. That's what gives rise to our singing God praise on a Sunday morning. You know, I was reflecting how this first miracle is at a marriage supper, and, and we look forward to a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ will, will have communion, will have fellowship, will eat and drink with us once again as we are part of his kingdom, and all of history is moving toward that. Also think about Christ and his love for his people and, and how that's, that's the benchmark. That's what we strive to emulate in our marriages, husband and wife. I mean, God is all about weddings. God is all about marriages. God is all about joy. And God is all about providing what we need to make it so. Maybe you're struggling with what you would have to give up to follow Jesus. That's usually the real problem. The, the intellectual arguments tend to, be, tend to be an excuse. You're, you just don't want to give up mastery of your life because Jesus himself said you have to deny yourself and take up your cross if you're going to follow him. But consider with whatever you have to give up, consider how much more you're going to give up if you don't follow him. Consider what you will gain. Consider that you will find rest for your soul, that you'll find freedom from guilt, that you'll find the power to live, that you'll find the joy of, of goodness and steadfast love that will pursue you all the days of your life, and then, and then you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God. And this is the God that Jesus is, that Jesus manifested. Glory, clear, shining, participating in joy, the opportunity of crisis, the power of God, and yes, reason for reliance. Never stop trusting him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for who you are and thank you 
that Jesus has made God known to us. Thank you that even now he intercedes for us and that he is with us all the days, even to the consummation of the age. Thank you that like a good shepherd, he leads us and feeds us and cares for us and seeks us when we've gone astray. Thank you, Father, that you're a God like that. And Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for thinking of you in lesser terms. Forgive us for our cynicism and our doubt and our impatience and even our anger at you. Forgive us for not leaning into your goodness and your grace and your truth and your authority and and finding our joy in following you. Lord, may the gospel that brings joy shine in our hearts and out through our lives. And God, this week and in the weeks to follow, may, may our belonging to Jesus create such joy that it's contagious and that, that we might interact with others that don't know Jesus yet and, and that they might see in us that beauty and joy of Christ. Lord, help us grow in that. Help us love you. Help us love others. Help us shine your glory. For just as Jesus was the light of the world, he has now tasked us to be the light of the world. May we shine clear. For it's in Christ's name we pray.